it's still raw with me what happened up there because we're unarmed and the atrocities that were going on were, were you know, horrendous right up to murder and rape and all that sort of stuff and it was just horrendous. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. If to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no one And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Very, very the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the plane burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. This is the second part of Thomas Kay's interview with Don Barnby. Make sure you've heard Volume 1 before listening to the rest of Don's story. Don served in the Australian Special Air Service Regiment during the Vietnam War. Before his time with the Australian Federal Police and deployments to Cyprus, Bougainville and East Timor, Part 2 of this conversation picks up in Vietnam, with Don describing his first contact where he took a life. Do you remember the first time you made contact with the enemy and took a life? It was an ambush, a rifle ambush I seem to remember. And uh, because I was I was the SIG, normally I would be at the back of the patrol, probably you know, 10 metres or 5 metres behind the patrol, looking as rear security. Uh, but for some reason I was in, it might have been a 10-man ambush, 10-man uh, patrol, sorry. But I was in the ambush site, so I can't remember how many uh, Viet Cong came down the track, probably four or five, six or something. And uh, we all had a designated, you know, when the first person gets to there and the patrol commander will initiate the contact, boom. Um, and I fired and I think I hit the person that I fired at and uh, he was, they were dead. And I think we got three or four out of that uh, contact. But I remember... Yeah, you don't think about it at the time. It just all happens really quickly and, and then you get then the patrol was pulled out and we got back. But I remember going down to Vung Tau after that patrol and the ops officer of the patrol in those days uh, was an old bloke, ex-Korean, Borneo, Vietnam. Well experienced, very seasoned. Lovely old guy. And uh, he said, how, how are you, young buddy? He said, yeah, you're reliving that contact or whatever you're doing. Yeah. And uh, he said, right, he said, uh, we're in a bar. And he said, uh, take off your belt. And I thought, Jesus, what, what's going on here? This is a bit of a weird weird uh, ritual we're going to go through. And he said, tie yourself to the bar. So I took off my belt. I was very skinny in those days, nine stone or something. And you know, tied the belt around the bar rail and around my waist. And he said, uh, we're going to drink this out of you. And, and we just drank. And you, know, you couldn't fall over. <laughs> we just we just maggoted and then I think he called somebody and we went back before curfew uh, back to the airbase. But um, yeah, that's how I got over it. And um, yeah, it sort of lived with you for a while. But then activities took over. Uh, you're on a lot of patrols, doing a lot of stuff, so you didn't dwell on any of that sort of stuff. So you did later, but not not at the time. Can we paint a picture here for our listeners and have you describe how you operate differently? from the main army, from the makeup of a patrol to the gear you carry and SAS protocols? Uh, SAS's main role is uh, surveillance and reconnaissance of enemy areas, uh, areas of enemy activity and all that sort of stuff. 
although depending on different task force commanders utilised uh, SAS patrols in different ways. And one of our other roles was ambush, fighting uh, a fighting role, ambush role. So normally if, if that was part of a patrol's brief, you would conduct reconnaissance in the first part of the patrol and then towards the end of the patrol, we all carried clamor mines and white foss grenades and you know, some of the stuff, I, and I'll go into that in a minute, the amount of ammunition I used to carry or we all used to carry. But if part of your role was an ambush fighting patrol, sometimes two patrols would marry up so it was a 10-man patrol, but often it was just five. Towards the end of the patrol, we would ambush a track. If we'd found a track that was well used by the enemy, we would then radio in and say, we're laying an ambush on this this track of this location to let them know basically because if if we did spring the ambush and, and the shit hit the fan um would need extraction almost immediately so depending on where the ambush location was we would the patrol commander and the two ic and everybody would then assess the nearest lz that the chopper could come in and take us off so the difference being to a battalion Australian Army Battalion's role. They did perform many roles, patrolling large areas, um, search, coordinate search operations, uh, ambushes, offensive operations against well-known enemy positions and, and all that. And they generally saw a lot more action than, than SAS because our role was not to get into a fight. Uh, our role was to look at the enemy and observe and report on them and hopefully get out. A lot of people have said, is a patrol successful if you have a contact and you, you know, kill some enemy? Well, it depends on your role, but normally no. Normally a patrol was much more successful in, in terms of success if the enemy did, never knew you were there and you could observe, have observed a bunker system and reported on it and did sketches and all that sort of stuff, located its position on the map, and then we'd pull out and call in either battalion strike on that thing or air support or naval gunfire or artillery or something. So they were the parameters in which we operated. Uh, we used to carte blanche or have a fairly general free reign as to what we'd carry uh, on that patrol as long as we carried all the required equipment and ammunition. Uh, we could doctor our webbing. We could doctor our weapons. Each squadron that went up had a really good armour attached to them and they would um, doctor weapons to what you would like. Uh, sometimes um, they would cut the barrel down to shorten the, the barrel of a weapon, either an SLR or a uh, Armalite. I carried an Armalite mainly with a, under and over, a 40mm bomb launcher underneath. But sometimes they would shorten the barrel on the thing and what that would do would throw out a big muzzle flash. So if you did get into contact, the enemy instantly would think, because it would slow the rate of fire down and also send out a big muzzle flash. So if you did bump either VC or NVA, uh, they would probably immediately think, shit, we've hit a, an infantry company or something. Because of all this firepower that we had, we had only five weapons or 10, but it's mainly five. Uh, but we could throw out a lot of firepower instantly in a, in a contact and then get out of the shooting scoop. If you could get hold of them, we had 30-round magazines instead of the, the average 20. The SLRs were doctored up with pistol grips to hold them, hold them down if they were, they were turned to fully automatic. 
whereas SLR is um, repetition. You know, every time you pull the trigger, it went off. But our armourers used to doctor them to fully automatic, and you could put 30 rounds of SLR, which is 7.62, downrange. I mean, that with a big muzzle flash, and the rate of fire of the weapon would be slowed down because they'd been doctored, you know, shorter barrel, return spring, all that sort of stuff. Sounds like a little bit more firepower than what we actually had, but you'd put a lot of bullets out in a short space of time. Our gear was always different than battalions. I had my 40 mil bombs, you know, high explosive, white foss uh, on my chest, canister rounds, like big, big ball bearing shotgun rounds. We had different pouches for our magazines that hung low and around our waist. Our packs were, were slightly different. You could either carry Australian army packs, American army packs, Alice packs, Vietnamese army packs, you know, Arvin packs, Viet Cong or NVA packs, whatever type of equipment that worked for you and the patrol commander was happy for you to, to carry it, you could do that. We didn't shave uh, before an operation deliberately. and We didn't shower, we didn't use toothpaste, we didn't do any of that. So get rid of all those smells before you go out. So at the time of hitting the jungle on your, on your first day, you smelt like the jungle. So you'd, you'd be stinking before you even went out there. And then it just got better. Uh, yeah, ammunition carried. I used to carry... 20 20 round magazines for my M16, one 30 round magazine because they were fairly hard to get even then. One 30 round mag on the weapon, I'd carry probably six or eight high explosive 40 mil bombs, two or three white foss, probably four canister rounds, which was like a big shotgun, 40 mil shotgun, 40 mil smoke grenades, and sometimes, depending, where we'd take, I'd probably pack one or two tear gas, 40 mil tear gas rounds into my so. The rations we used were not normally Australian Army, although we had access to Australian Army rations. We used to mainly use American Lurpy packs, long-range patrol packs, which was all dehydrated. They had the occasional nice stuff like um, you know, tins of peaches and fruit cocktails and all this sort of stuff. But they had some really neat... I used to eat quite well out in the scrub when we could actually have a meal, I mean, which wasn't always. Couldn't heat up anything. There was too much stuff going on. But it was, you know, like chicken stew, beef stew, chilli con carne. And I used to always carry a little bottle of Tabasco sauce because I remember a certain enemy unit we used to always keep sort of seeing or hearing or finding evidence on them. Some member in that unit uh, carried Tabasco sauce. And it actually is quite a, a good little... Yeah, because the food itself was quite bland. So a couple of little dashes of Tabasco sauce and you'd pour your boiling water in and roll it up and, yeah, it was actually quite good. But my Linus blanket, my little thing that used to um, comfort me on long nights, uh, wet nights, um, long days, whatever, was tubes of condensed milk. So I'd go around, I didn't smoke. All the cigarettes that came in the ration packs, I'd go around and swap them for tubes of condensed milk. So I used to go out loaded, <laughs> loaded with all this condensed milk. And I used to just love lying in ambush or lying at night, just sucking on a tube of condensed milk. I've still got a taste for it, actually. I, I actually love it. It probably rotted my teeth horribly, but um, it was my little security thing. I used to love hot chocolate. When we could have a brew, I'd heat up the water and lots of hot chocolate and a whole tube of condensed milk, so it'd be just sickly sweet, but you needed the energy. You, you know, it was just comforting. And occasionally you'd have a little tin of fruit cocktail or something and then bash, burn, berry, put it all back in your pack. Yeah, and take it, you know, what you took in, you took out. So it'd be lighter, but it'd still be there. So you didn't leave anything for the enemy. And the way we used to operate was 
very differently from battalions. Sometimes we didn't cover much ground per day. The least ground covered on one patrol was probably two, three hundred metres. That's a lot from about six, seven a.m. in the morning till probably four in the afternoon. And you had two hours of, we used to call it gonk time in the afternoon. So you take two hours out of that day, but that's not a lot of ground you cover, is it? And then probably up to probably two or three kilometres would be the most we'd do. We, from previous tours, guys that have been on previous tours realised that the enemy slept in the middle of the day so and they found they discovered that it wasn't wise to be moving when they're sort of resting because they'd be still and if you're moving they might they would hear you so they figured out you know that they normally had we call it she's a gonk time gonking sleeping snoozing whatever they'd snooze from about what probably 12 till two o'clock so that's when we'd stop so we'd cease all movement find a really thick part of jungle or bamboo or something and sit down in there you wouldn't sleep but you would rest a lot of blokes would read i remember the 2ic of our patrol was learning german for his holiday in europe at the end of the tour so he he, he used to learn german while he did we'd take books out and i'd you know read a couple of pages you'd always be on alert there's only five of you you'll be facing out so you you weren't really relaxed but you weren't moving so then you'd have you know suck a water i'd, I'd have another tube of condensed milk or something eat a lolly or suck a ball sweet or something as I said, there was a lot of experience in the squadrons in those days. There were three squadrons and a lot of the guys had already been to Borneo and a lot of guys had already had previous tours in uh, SAS in Vietnam, training team, battalions, whatever. So there was a lot of corporate knowledge and the way we used to operate uh, reflected that. We used to fight like they fought and they used to, rumour has it, and been written about you know they used to hate us because you know they called us ma rung i think phantoms of the jungle there's a book written by david horner i think but because we were in their backyard and we never we never went on tracks so we'd be sneaky peeding through the thick jungle and they never knew where we were what we were doing just getting back to uh, like the bed space at night you just lie down clear a little area you know leaves away and you just lie down on your back with your back up on your pack and uh, if you had to cut any small vegetation with your secateurs you'd cut it and put it to the side the next morning when you left you'd pull all the leaves back up and then pull that cut branch and stick it in and smear mud on the cut bit so that any any enemy following up the next morning or something by the time the leaves and everything started to wilt we'd be long gone but they'd never know you could never see and that every morning i remember we leave we'd leave a, a night campsite we'd all look around you know yeah you know, make it all look as exactly like it was when we moved into it the previous night then we go off very slowly so can you recreate and describe the sights and sounds of the vietnam jungle i am weird i realize i'm weird but i do love the jungle I was never scared of the jungle, probably because a lot of time I spent in the bush. Uh, the Vietnamese jungle is um, unlike the jungle in New Guinea that we were training in. The Vietnamese jungle is uh, quite a different type of jungle, but the regions generally that we operated in were quite thick jungle. Lots of bamboo, lots of sparse trees, and then very thick vegetation, lots of little rivers and uh, streams and all this sort of stuff. But I actually find it quite a, found it quite a pretty place. It was full of wildlife. Didn't see a lot of wildlife in New Guinea, un- unbelievably. In Vietnam, even though there was a, had been a war on, they'd been at war there for hundreds and hundreds of years, but out where in the areas that we were, there, there was there had always been battles there. I mean, yeah, you can see evidence on trees of bomb damage and bullet holes of trees and all this sort of stuff and shell damage. But unbelievably, there was such a 
a variety of, uh, of fauna. And we saw things like tigers, elephants, big monkeys. And you get all these little little other types of monkeys, yeah, little white-faced spider monkeys that would sit up in the trees and look down inquisitively at you. Yeah, and Because uh, we were moving very slowly, we were all camouflaged up. Everything was camouflaged, so, you know, and you'd be moving very, even to look around, you'd look very slowly. You'd see these little guys up in the trees and you could see the, their thought process. What the hell is that? And you, and you come out and there'd be three or four of them all looking down at this thing looking up, you know, the whites of your eyes. And then they'd get a berry or something and throw it at you to see if it got a reaction. And, yeah, they'd follow you. They'd follow you across the tree. There was lots and lots of snakes and there was these big lizards that when they ran, it sounded like um, a guy, in bare, a human in bare feet running down a pad, you know, padded track. Because I remember we were stopped for morning tea or something. It sounds nice, doesn't it? Morning tea. And uh, we're having scones and jam and cream and, you know, really having a good time. And I remember Bill and I were facing in one direction. We heard this, you know, like, you know, down the track that was that we were paralleling. And Jesus, everybody went on high alert. And we, you know, look, waiting, you know, because it just sounded like a human being. And this bloody big lizard, I think they called them monitor lizards, don't quote me, but it stopped on the other side of this dense bush that we were hiding behind and then rose up over it. And it's like, yeah, those uh, iguanas, uh, those big lizards on the Komodo dragon. It was like looking down and it looked at us and I can't remember, one of us winked like this and it just took off. But they're, they're big lizards, big, big, scared the shit out of them. Absolutely. I mean, you know, heart in mouth, pulse a million miles an hour, you know, thinking that what's going, what's coming up the other side of the bushes has got a gun, not a big set of fangs. Anyway, lots of snakes. Uh, I remember once I was sending morse and because I used to, as I said, cover myself in a poncho and when I send morse, I, I, I actually move, you know, rhythm, get in the rhythm of the morse. I used to just move my head up and down. So anyway, I, I was under this poncho, I was, happily daring away and one of the patrol members i think the patrol commander when i just went you know here's your message and i lifted up the poncho to give him the message and he looked around because he'd been looking out and he looked around and there was this big python that was wrapped around the branch above my head and then the his head and about what four feet of him was hanging down his head was about a foot above my head but because i'd been diddy bopping you know on the you know, totally in the zone and my head had been bobbing up and down i'd obviously mesmerize him and put him to sleep and he was just like wrapped around you and he was his his head was and i remember skip you know let out a, a an expletive, because, yeah, not very, not very operational. But Jesus, he scared the shit. And there's this big bloody python. So, and I went, what? And I pulled it, and I'm looking up at this big set of fangs. Anyway, I very gently got away and packed everything up. Boom, we got off. But it wasn't those ones that were the danger. These, the smaller the stakes, the more venomous. And I remember one time Bill had put his pack down and then got up, went off to do something came back to his pack and there this this little snake, quite a poisonous little snake, about, what, yay, two feet long, had curled up in the warmth of his pack where he'd been sitting, leaning up against his pack. And he was almost just about to sit back down to his pack and saw this bloody snake. So there was a lot of stuff like that. And I remember 
some of these scorpions, the size of them, they were like sort of lobsters, you know, almost the size of lobsters, unbelievable sizes. And for entertainment, sometimes I would cut up these millipedes and each one would have its own mind. And all these little pieces, segments of this millipede would then run around chasing each other. They'd, they'd all run around all over the place. It's like their nerves were still, you know, still alive, but dead, but alive. Then they'd all run around, then the ants would get them and and uh, you'd, you'd lie in ambush sometimes and uh, if it was quite quiet, the leeches would be everywhere, leeches everywhere. And um, you'd get a twig, get a leech, get it to stick onto your finger, then pull it off your finger and then turn it inside out with a twig or something and then throw it to the ants and the ants would just devour it. They'd come out of everywhere. I remember one morning I woke up and, and a leech had obviously got into my ear because I'd, I'd just leaning against my pack like that and go... And when the whole patrol wake up, they looked across at me and there was just blood everywhere. And they thought my throat had been cut or something during the night, but it was a leech that had got into my ear, sucked its fill of blood, and then I'd obviously roll back on it or something and burst it. And it just blood everywhere. So leeches were everywhere. There were, and mosquitoes used to bite through your, your greens, anywhere where the material was tight across your skin. They'd bite, bite through it. And the bug repellent we had was, you know, it's like melt the front off your car. I mean, it was like, you know, no wonder we are all got these weird diseases. But when you went in and sat down sometimes, because there was leeches and ants everywhere, I mean, you just couldn't sit there. So you'd squirt a circle and then you'd kill everything in the circle and then you'd sit in the circle because nothing, you know, all these things had sort of come, there'd be leeches on the bushes coming and ants coming across the ground, yeah, and then they'd hit this barrier of this insect repellent. And, you know, it was like... Like an electric field, and they'd go, they'd, they'd head away. But, but none of that actually worried me. I mean, I actually, I actually quite loved it. And going, going to sleep at night, I remember, you know, when we we'd, we'd had our meal if we could have, and you'd be all sitting around waiting for dark, and dark comes very quickly. You'd all be sitting around your little group looking out, and then you'd hear the noise, the jungle going to sleep. And I, I still do it now when I'm down out in the bush I got a little place down the coast and I just love listening to the bush go to sleep all the birds you know making their nighttime sounds and the lizards and the all the animals you know all the all the and the fuck you lizards you know these lizards would say fuck you fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> that was their call and uh you just sit there and you'd listen to the bush the jungle just go to sleep and and in a sense that was your uh security alarm if the jungle didn't make the noises that the jungle should have been making, there was something happening. Yeah, that if it went suddenly dead quiet, well, they would have stopped because a human is in the area. They wouldn't see us because we'd all be just dead still, making very little noise, very impact on the on the landscape. But somebody walking through or something, all these birds and animals would birds would take off, you know, and fly away, and then you think. That's your security alarm, you know. So when you got to read the jungle and understand it, and, yeah, sleeping in mud and going through dense vegetation is not fun, definitely not fun, it's terrible. But I used to find it quite comforting. Never worried me at all. I was never afraid of it. Are there any particular memorable ambushes your team set up for the enemy? Uh, we went, we did a lot of patrols, but we had very few contacts. I remember we had one contact, I think, going across a, a creek bed. We were opened up on by an RPD, uh, a light machine gun or something. And I remember scooting back up the hill backwards and over the top of the crest, but the scout was in the in the little creek line and he was under the enemy position. And so we, we got out of there with a couple of hand grenades and a few 40 mil bombs, but that was a bit uh, heart-ripping. 
when you talk to some of the other uh, patrols that went out, they had contacts a lot. I actually probably wished, and, and most of us did, that contacts were like a release of pressure and tension, whereas if you go out and you're not in contact and then, then you, you come back in and then it all happens again and you go out expecting it, the level of expectation is incredibly high and then nothing happens and then you come back out. No, no, no war stories really, but some interesting things did happen. I fell about 20 metres off a, a helicopter winch on an insert on one patrol and uh, a guy in, a, in one of the gunships filmed me on an 8mm movie and that's the only thing that that evidence of that me falling off into the side of a luckily a, a big 500 pound bomb crater um, and he got it on very grainy 8mm movie but there I am falling off the winch. DVA thought it was a good story until they saw the footage and they thought oh well yeah, okay because <clears throat> I hurt my back you know I ruptured two discs and another time I was uh, bitten by over 100 wasps, so I'm highly allergic to wasps or bees now, but uh, the forward scout patrol commander walked across this dead log and um, the bloke behind me said it was uncanny. He said Skip and, and Birdie, the, the scout, had gone, you know, 10 metres away, and as soon as you stepped over the log, all these things came out of uh, like a nest in the, in the dead log and they were like a big squadron, a big, big black cloud, and they just went all over my head and shoulders and hands no, repeatedly biting me because they can repeatedly bite. And the guys just rushed. I was just, ah, yes. And they got on my webbing. And they were literally, uh, they told me, I, I was out to it. They were literally scooping handfuls of wasps off me. They would scoop them off my head and throw them away and they'd go straight back on if they weren't squashed. And not one other person in the patrol got one bite. And I was in a coma for about two days or something and they hollowed up in a big patch of bamboo and because I was the SIG I, I was out to it I was in a coma they pumped me full of antihistamines and lots of other stuff and the other guy in the patrol that was cross-trained in Morse froze up in the set and he could send messages but he couldn't receive it he just you know had a mind, mind blank and so uh yeah when, when I finally came out of I finally got on the set and groggily yeah sent you know Kazovac so we got out we had to we had to get exfilled the patrol was compromised I was, I was stuffed but uh yeah that left me with a hell of a headache for quite a few weeks and then what did you think of the enemy at the time? Did you have some sort of respect for them? Yeah, again, I was I was a very young soldier, so I had no real experience, but I certainly had respect for them because, you know, they uh, I thought they were reasonably good. But the, the two levels of enemy that we, we were dealing with was VC and various levels of VC professionalism or NVA. So the NVA were, were the North Vietnamese Army troops and I know other guys that have had major contacts with NVA units and level of respect is unbounded. I mean, they were incredibly, incredibly good soldiers and there was the old saying that if you have a contact and the, and the uh, return fire comes in low and slow, you're in trouble. Yeah, because it's usually NVA because they used to have control fire, low and slow, and and uh, fire control, yeah, two or three rounds, da 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 you know, and coming in about a foot off the ground, you'd known you'd hit the ship. But if you generally had contact with a Viet Cong unit, generally they'd fire high and wide, no fire control at all. There'd be just you know, brrr, you know, guns going off. Well, it'd still kill you, but they weren't as disciplined in any way, shape, or form, and and they were just local. Viet, Viet Cong guerrillas but um, regardless of that yeah I had respect for at my level I had respect for them because they could kill you and they used to live in incredibly atrocious conditions and to me they were yeah they were good soldiers they were good soldiers and I love the Vietnamese been back several times since love it 
It's a great country. Nice people. Lovely people. War stupid. You then leave Vietnam, um, see your time out in the service and join the Australian Federal Police. Can you uh, recap for us briefly your career here and how your military service might have impacted on it? Uh, yeah, I joined the uh, left the army in May '73. Joined the police in July '73. It was the ACT police in those days, because there was the ACT Commonwealth Police in Canberra, and we were we were the local clods, and the Commonwealth Police had jurisdiction over Commonwealth properties and all that sort of stuff, and Commonwealth crime. Uh, so I joined the ACT police. Uh, Twenty weeks of uh, training uh, at the ACT police. It was Waden Police Station in those days. Then I was in general duties and embassies. We used to sort of guard some of the embassies and parla- old Parliament House. And I did a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of stuff on the road um, for about 12, 16 months. Uh, general duties police officer, just doing normal stuff. Crimes, uh, drunks, fights, domestics, all that sort of deaths. I think the adrenaline kicked in again. I needed that adrenaline surge. So I put in for traffic and I passed the bike course, which was quite hard. There was... Fairly high attrition rate on that too. And um, became a bikey for probably 12, 13 years or something in traffic. And during that time, saw lots of uh, lots of fatal accidents. And in the meantime, I was in the rescue squad and SOT, uh, Special Operations Team. And, and in those days, those units were part-time. So whenever there was a search, um, all the guys that were in search and rescue in those days, we'd kit up and head off into the mountains and find people and look for people. And, and then I was also in Special Operations Team. So you know, the, the door kickers, they'd go down and kick doors in, like uh, SRG or whatever. They takes lots of different names these days. Uh, so I did that. I remember going to, um, I was on the, of course I was in the rescue squad. I was asked to go to, or ordered to go to um, Darwin after cyclone tracing. Uh, so we landed on Boxing Day and our jobs there for about six, five, six weeks was uh, searching suburbs for uh, any signs of life, uh, recovering bodies, property or weapons. So we found a few of all of those and that was an interesting Interesting period, quite difficult conditions up there. I felt so sorry for the people. The plane that we landed in was immediately filled with women and kids basically heading south to uh, places like Adelaide, Sydney, Melbourne, because uh, they'd lost everything. The houses had gone. looked like a, just a big bomb site, quite frankly. So that was, uh, that was interesting from my perspective um, and then came back, continued on in traffic. And in 1980, the uh, AFP was formed in 1979, the amalgamation of the Commonwealth Police, ACT Police and uh, Narcotics Bureau. So I, I had already put in for Cyprus. My marriage was on the rocks, literally. So uh, I'd put in for the first AFP contingent to go to Cyprus, 17th contingent in Cyprus. So duly left, got over there in April. I did 18 months in Cyprus, uh, came back, uh, which I found very interesting. I mean, uh, adrenaline-wise, not not up on a par with Vietnam. Our main duties there was to patrol the buffer zone between uh, the Turks and the Greeks, uh, investigate any offences or any incursions into the buffer zone by locals generally or other people, uh, investigate any criminal activity within the buffer zone and liaise with the uh, the army units who were there, which were the Brits, the Canadians, the Austrians, the Swedes and the Danes. We'd conduct long you know, patrols out into the different areas. The other police, civilian police force, there at that stage was the Swedish police, and they were based at Larnaca. We were based in Nicosia. 
I found it incredibly interesting. I mean, it was it was just a, a difference from the usual duties, uh, the duties you did in Australia. And actually, you weren't, you'd turn up at a job, whatever that job may be, and you weren't pelted with abuse and stones like you were in Australia generally. Uh, they were always pleased to see you because you were there to investigate something that they wanted and they welcomed you. The Greeks and the Turks, they were both lovely people. And yeah, you got to know a lot about the cultures of both. Love the food, love the, uh, the life in the UN sort of uh, social circuit. And then I had to come back and get divorced, so I got, got divorced, came back to Australia, and then I was asked, because I obviously did reasonably well on my first tour, I was asked to go back to replace a couple of guys on the 19th contingent in 1983. So I went back to Cyprus then on the 19th and then continued on with the 20th contingent, the next contingent. Um, so I did a, generally another 18 months uh, doing the same thing. Did lots of travel around the Middle East and then I went to Beirut, went to Syria, Damascus quite often, Egypt a lot, Israel a hell of a lot because we could jump on in those days, we could jump on the Canadian Air Force C-130s, pay I think $2.50 insurance. It was like, yeah, defence insurance and you just get there at the designated time, they'd take you over there and they'd, you'd know when they're doing another circuit there, you'd jump back on and go back to Cyprus. So travelled extensively throughout the Middle East in those days and the exclusion of Lebanon, uh, the Middle East was quite stable. I say that with brackets, quite stable at that time. Uh, did a few trips into Europe, England and all around the place. So we had leave off the island every now and again. So, you know, a couple of us would team up and, you know, everything was quite cheap because you're already in the Mediterranean. Yeah, enjoy. that was an enjoyable three years, basically. And then I come back and I remember my last job in Cyprus was something like donkeys... Greek donkeys straying into the buffer zone where there's a possible minefield or something. So we had to investigate that, you know, and uh, report the loss of two or three donkeys that had stepped on anti-personnel mines or something. But then my first job back in Australia after all that time, and then at the end of that tour, sorry, I took three months leave because I'd bought a Kawasaki 1000 motorbike and uh, two or three of us teamed up and we rode all the way through, took the ferry over to Rhodes and then onto the Turkish mainland, all the way up the coast through Italy. Da, 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 da. Picked up my girlfriend at that stage at, at Amsterdam Airport and then all around through Europe and then over the channel and we did all England and Scotland and Wales and Ireland. So, you know, three months of holidaying. And then my first job back in Australia was I was back into traffic and uh, was a double fatal and gin and dura drive. And it was like... It was really a bit weird, you know, getting my head around, you know, one minute investigating, you know, these offences that were reasonably serious in their own right, I guess. But then you come back and there, you know, there's a couple of bodies strewn on the road and, and having to investigate that and, and deal with that side of police work. And I thought, yeah, I have to get in the right headspace for the, to do this. So I did that for a further 12 months, I think. 18 months and then uh, uh, transferred to witness security, did that for five years, looking after witnesses for trials and all that sort of stuff, giving them my new identities and moving them all around the place. And then I uh, was promoted to sergeant and then uh, ended up uh, doing C, close personal protection stuff for uh, the Turkish ambassador for a while. And then I was, uh, during the first Gulf War, I was put on Bob Hawke when he was PM, so I was put on that team for a while. And then um, I was then transferred to the Governor General's CPP team. Bill Hayden, and I was with him for about six years. And, and then the fun stopped. Oh, and, and, yeah, then the fun did stop. And then they thought, well, yeah, you've had, a, you've had this high life for a long time and had, yeah, had a pretty good time actually and, and didn't blot my copybook too much. And they thought I should be uh, re-educated basically. So they took me off the road, off, off, off operational duties and put me in Interpol. 
and that, you know, like instead of riding around a police bike and having a gun and doing police stuff, you know, like what we did, I was put behind a computer and I didn't have a lot to do with computers. And I used to travel thousands of miles a day in Interpol without a passport. I just, you know, you'd talk to people in, you know, the, the bureaus in London and, and uh, Washington and all around the world, India and Germany, and then do all these investigations that Interpol used to conduct. I remember on the Christopher Scase trial, well, I had a fair bit to do with that. And, uh, you know, when they were chasing him all over the place. And, you know, pedophile Dolly Dunn and all those things, you know, you're doing collating information for all those sort of uh, trials. I really couldn't see myself doing this and enjoying it to the max for an unlimited amount of time. So then the chance came to go to Bougainville. So I put in for that and I swapped one jungle for the next, an office jungle for a real green jungle, wet and miserable. So I went to Bougainville for three months and that was pretty tough. Uh, I worked with New Zealand SAS. This was the Kiwi, Kiwi Army was there before the Australian Army got there. This is uh, TMG, Truce Monitoring Group, and I was in a team in a place called Tonu and Savelli up in the Highlands with Kiwi SAS soldiers and a girl from Ausaid, a girl from DFAT, and a guy, a civilian from Defence. And we used to go out teaching the locals about the peace agreement, the peace accord, handing weapons in, how it would affect them because of the troubles in Bougainville at that time with the uh, Panguna mines and all those sort of things. Uh, we were trying to stop the fighting uh, getting the young bucks, the young guys off this liquor that they were making, you know, and then they'd go berserk with weapons and kill people and shoot. So we, we were sort of mediating doing that, uh, meanwhile doing lots of long-range patrols up into the mountains, and it was like almost being back in Vietnam but without a gun. I was unarmed. They were armed. I was unarmed. But I sort of got that buzz back a little bit. But the conditions were atrocious. I mean, I got really sick. I lost 12 kilos, blood running out of just almost every orifice, and I had dysentery and oh god it's you know like really not not happy yeah you know, the conditions were terrible we lost a land rover outside our little little hut one night it just sank into the swamp that we were sort of living on right up to the the uh, level of the windows irretrievable just just sank in the swamp we used to have to you know bathe in the river and the river was used as a toilet and everything else by the locals so so yeah that was that was quite interesting and uh did three months there, came back, and literally within a month or so I got out of the police force, uh, then travelled back to Europe, then came back and literally back a few days and got a phone call from a mate of mine that was pretty high up in the police. He said, do you want to, do you want to go to Timor? We're sending a, a team of police to Timor because of the, have you been reading the papers? And I said, oh, yeah, uh, but I didn't really realise what was going on, so I, I quickly researched everything I could and I was asked to go back on that so um, along with 50 other Australian police and police from many other nations we ended up in Dili in Unimet and within a couple of days of Dili we were up into the mountains at a place called um, Amira, Glano. Uh, I was with uh, another Australian copper, uh, two New Zealand coppers and two Spanish coppers. Then our charter for that mission was to investigate alleged atrocities committed by militia and Indonesian military. But we were always accompanied by Indonesian police, so the villagers were quite reluctant to talk to us about anything because these guys were always there. And also to do a census, uh, do a census for the upcoming uh, referendum popular consultation. Did the locals want to stay under Indonesian control or 
have independence. So we did the investigations into alleged atrocities and all these complaints by the locals. We conducted a census in my area. We did it all over the island. And then on the 30th of August, I think it was, we conducted the popular consultation. And uh, there was a bit of violence leading up to that. But on the day of the the election, call it that, then it all went pear-shaped. And then, uh, what, 12, 13 days later, we were evacuated. Unimet collapsed. The militia rampaged through the place and just, you know, They'd been doing it up until then, but then they they were off the leash and they just went mad. And then shortly after we got evacuated, the Interfet went in, the Australian Army went in, and under Cosgrave, and then they um, restored order and and now Timor's sort of back to rights. You know? Lovely people, Timorese. Got to know lots of them and it was uh, quite a sad time. It's still raw with me what happened up there because we were unarmed and the atrocities that were going on were, were you know, horrendous right up to murder and rape and all that sort of stuff and it was just horrendous. So that was a pretty uh, pretty emotional and uh, very dangerous period. So then I came back because I was only in on a short term. I went gone back in the police force for a short term contract, I think five months. So then I got out again, then worked at Parliament House doing security there part time for about four or five years. And then I got a bit sick of that bureaucratic nightmare up there. And so I got out of that and um, ended up working up at the War Memorial conducting interviews for veterans, for their oral history archives, which I still do. Can you tell us a bit more about the interviews that you do at the War Memorial? Yeah, well, it all it all happened uh, years ago, back in probably about 2010. I was trying to get a, a very old friend of mine interviewed by the War Memorial. I was approaching a guy up the War Memorial that I knew in the history section to interview this guy because he was old. And I wanted him interviewed. This guy had joined on day one in the 6th Division and gone all through to Brook Badia, uh, Greece, Crete, back to Alexandria, over to Syria. He was one of four brothers in his family. Talk about saving Private Ryan. His brother was in artillery. He was killed by a French sniper in Syria. Al and his brother were in the same section in the 2nd, 3rd Battalion, 6th Division. And his other brother was in the 9th Division, 2nd, 2nd Machine Gun, the same unit that my uncle was in, in the Middle East. Anyway, so he'd seen all these major battles and then they got pulled out of Syria, went to Ceylon, uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, on their way back to Australia and then the stuff with Churchill and yeah, Churchill wanting the troops to go to Burma and Curtin pulling them back to Australia because uh, New Guinea. So came back, a little bit of training, then they went up or up to uh, Port Moresby and they were on the Kokoda track, Kokoda Trail. And he and his brother were both wounded at Eora Creek. And uh, long story short, he was repatriated back to Australia, Al was, and uh, and then he, by various means, got out of the army, joined the Air Force, this Royal Australian Air Force, was guaranteed a crew position, so went to Canada on the Empire Air Training Scheme, became a bomb aimer navigator on Halifax bombers, and ended up going to England and flying with an RAF squadron, 148 squadron RAF, um, flying missions over Italy and Yugoslavia till the end of the war. So I wanted to, and I knew I'd known Al for 20 years, lovely guy. I wanted to interview him because it was a very interesting story. Anyway, they kept humming and harring and putting it off. And I said, well, I'll do it. And they said, oh, we can't pay you. I don't want money. I just want this. Because, yeah, he was expecting to be interviewed and, and he was looking forward to it. And he was he was getting old. So anyway, I, I conducted the interview. And I think I told you before, it was probably about a five-hour interview. And, and Al forgot one detail in the five-hour interview, the name of the destroyer that evacuated him from Crete back to Alexandria. 
one detail. We, we figured it out later. And then soon after, within months of that interview, he deteriorated quite rapidly and then uh, eventually died from Alzheimer and dementia-related conditions, very sadly. But as a result of that, they apparently liked the way I interviewed. So then I started interviewing other veterans. So I concentrate mainly on either police peacekeepers or army veterans. I don't, I don't like doing and never have done a Navy subject because that's a bit technical and that doesn't, that's not fair to the interviewee because I don't know, you know, I mean, I know ships, but I don't know them like a Navy person knows them. So that wouldn't be fair to the interviewer. So they have a Navy, couple of Navy people that interview them and I won't do Air Force, an Air Force guy that does those. So I have conducted interviews from guys that have been in Afghanistan, Timor, Second World War, quite a few on Vietnam, peacekeepers. And as I said, I interviewed a Z special guy late last year and which was incredibly interesting and uh, a couple of uh, Vietnam guys related to the John Sherman I was only 19 song. So I find it very rewarding because these guys have all got great stories to tell and, yeah, they're walking history books and it's uh, yeah, good to do, put back a few things. And I've been interviewed up there a few times too, so I find it all very valuable and worthwhile. Rewarding would be a good word. Definitely it is. Going back, did your military career have much of an impact on your time with the police? Probably in the sense that most of the missions I've ever done, weirdly apart from East Timor, there was a military component to that mission, particularly in Cyprus. Because I've been in the military, I knew how to speak to speak and talk to talk and walk to walk and do all that stuff. So I often used to, I used to liaise with them a lot usually over a few drinks, but I, I knew how they thought. And so it came easily to me. And then in Bougainville, I was with the New Zealand Army. Uh, again, that, that just, I didn't have to think about it. It just worked, just happened. You know, I got on well with these guys. and They probably didn't know the extent of my army service, but they uh, we used to wear ribbons on our uniform because we're in a UN mission. So they'd see that, you know, you know he's obviously been somewhere, done something, and some of them were a little bit more, um, you know, intuitive and they knew what they were Vietnam ribbons or whatever and infantry combat badge so um, that sort of broke the ice on a lot of things so in that sense yes it did help me at a personal level um, it gave me that adrenaline buzz again I was doing stuff that I found to be uh, yeah exciting yeah it's always I find it interesting being around military military things and people and identities and doing sort of military-related stuff. It's, uh, I like the way they operate, mostly. There's always exceptions to the rule. But, uh, yeah, so, yes, in that sense, yes, it did help. Have you had any or did you have any lingering memories or trauma from your time in the Vietnam jungle? No, not really. Um, again, I have now. I, uh, I have been diagnosed with quite a few things in relation to my service, but... PTSD being one of them. It took years for that to happen. But but in those days, uh, after Vietnam, I mean, I was busy. I came back from Vietnam heavily into training in the regiment, doing stuff. Got out in 73, joined the police force, got married in 73 just before I joined the police force. Uh, busy, busy, busy doing stuff. Uh, I was young, 10 foot tall and bulletproof, I think is the expression that's written about. Uh, as we all used to say, that you know, 10 foot tall and full of bullshit. But you, you were doing stuff, and when you're busy and, you do, and, you do, and you're leading a busy life, you don't have time to reflect or do, well, I didn't anyway. Cyprus didn't pay any, uh, have any real significant effect on me, I don't think. Bougainville did, physically more than mentally. Timor definitely did mentally and physically. I had typhoid and dengue when I came back from uh, East Timor. But I was also mentally stuffed up, as most of us were, because we'd witnessed a lot of atrocities. 
were powerless to do anything about it. And there was that sense of, uh, in, a, in, a, in a way, you know, we left Vietnam and left them to their fate, basically. And in Timor, we left them to their fate. We always used to say to the villagers up there, uh, we will be here. There will be a lot of violence possibly after the election. The Indonesians won't go quietly if you vote against them, uh, but we will be here. Well, we were pulled out. And I remember the looks on these villagers' faces as we did literally pull out. They knew what their fate was. And as a result, quite a lot of them died after that. Um, so that was a feeling of helplessness, outrage, frustration, you know, totally, totally powerless to do anything about it. So, yes, that, was, uh, that really impacted on me. And then I did hit the wall. Uh, as you get older, my expression is the veneer gets thinner and you have time to think about it and reflect and... Even even there, I was I was in the police force. You know, it was probably I probably had all those symptoms, but I was just busy doing stuff. But since I've retired, you have more time to reflect, think about it. Uh, and then Timor, that's a very good friend of mine in the regiment, said saw me soon after Timor, and I was a mess. I was crying at the drop of a hat and just uh, was a blithering idiot basically. And he said, "Mate, you've been to the well of courage too often. Don't go back. It's dry." So. I thought that was pretty pretty intuitive. I see a psych uh, through DVA, VVCS every now and again, and she says, you're like an onion. Every time I peel back a layer, there's another layer. Then there's another layer. Then there's another layer. She said, I just don't know where to start. So we just start at the beginning and work our way through and then go back and do it again. So you can't do these things uh, without any impact on your emotional or physical well-being. You, you just can't. I mean, I've had more diseases than... My doctor thinks I should go there. Every time I go and see him, I should be in an ambulance. Uh, but I'm incredibly lucky compared to a lot of my colleagues and peers. Uh, I've had a few brushes with cancer. I've had knees replaced. I've had this, that. But I'm pretty good. I can still do Mount Aisley about 22 minutes. So I'm really healthy. But, but, but there is a, a price to pay. Uh, I can't sleep. I have outbursts of anger and all that all the time. My partner is long-suffering. She puts up with me, but we get on really well. But yes, you do pay a price for all these things. doesn't come cheap. Looking back over your service and your career, how do you reflect on it all? Would you have made the same choices? I'd make the same choices. I wouldn't have, would not have changed the thing. And I don't know how many times you've heard that or haven't heard that, but I would not have changed the thing. I had an incredible life. I was blessed with the ability to be healthy enough to to do the things that I did, blessed enough to miss the bullets that were aimed at me. I have paid the price. I have paid the piper, but I have done stuff. And I always think of that line in The Scent of a Woman, I think Robert De Niro said at that hearing, he said, I've done stuff, you know, I've been around. You know, and, I, and I have, I've done stuff. But I've said this before in another interview that I am proud of my service. I'm proud of what I've done. I have regretted what I've seen and experienced but I wouldn't have missed it for the world. All done. You went from being a phantom in the jungle to a man in blue and <laughs> fields of public service. You've given a lot for the country and thank you for your service and speaking with us today. Absolute pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, guys. That's the end of Thomas Kay's two-part conversation with Dom Barnby. If you're interested in learning more about the history of the Australian SAS, one of our early Season 1 bonus episodes was a conversation between Tom and Dr Carl James, Senior Historian at the Australian War Memorial. 
scroll back through the podcast feed and look for the episode titled Australia's Special Forces with Dr. Carl James. It's an insightful conversation on the history behind the story you just heard. If you enjoyed the conversation, please let us know by going to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and giving us a five-star rating and review. This helps more people discover the show and hear these stories. You can also let us know what you think by emailing us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. We're on Twitter at LOTLpod and on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast. And our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget, 